Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I know queer people, and they're nicer to me than the people at church. So, like, I don't know. Like, this is, this is weird for me. Like, I don't know how to make this Bible verse fit into my lived experience. Hi, I'm Chloe Gio, and you're listening to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground, a podcast about white Christian supremacy and being queer on the most conservative campuses in the country. Think of me as your guide and translator as we explore the carefully constructed subculture of religious education. Joining me are co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick, our resident legal expert and historian, and Aaron Green, our biblical scholar. What you will find here is a roadmap to change from the underbelly of the church's best-kept secrets. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to introduce our guest today. She is a dear friend, an anti-racist educator, writer, content creator, and prolific tweeter based in Oregon. She is very well known for being super passionate about educating people on the subjects of racial bias, behavioral neuroscience, and creating justice using data. Of course, I am talking about the one and only Tori Douglas. Tori, welcome to On God's Campus. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this. Absolutely. Same here. Excited to talk with you. So let's just dig right in. Um, Tori, tell us a little bit about your personal connection to Christianity and religious education and how your relationship with that has maybe evolved or changed over time. Yeah, absolutely. So I was raised evangelical, um, more more on the like fundamentalist kind of Pentecostal side of things. Um, and I was homeschooled my Yay. whole life, like Just K through 12, um, because, you know, uh, Satan has nothing to do. And so he hangs out at public schools. And um, <laughs> that's a great way of explaining. I have never heard that. That was awesome. So uh, yeah, about I, I feel in retrospect, about 50% of my quote unquote hours of education were uh, the Bible. Um, and the other 50% were, you know, reading and writing and fake Jesus science. So it was it was a good time. Um, yeah, so my um, my mom homeschooled all of us. She was also um, I was about to say she was also an anti-racist educator. She was not. She was an anti-abortion activist in Oregon. And oh, so wow. um, she was a little bit different. Yeah, a little bit different. She worked um, with Eagle Forum, which is Phyllis Schlafly's 
the late oh boy. Phyllis Schlafly's organization. Oh yeah, boy. like like she got an award from Phyllis Schlafly um, when I was a child. That's yeah, that's the whole thing. So I was definitely like involved in like church and like evangelical church and conservative politics. Uh, not you know I had I had no say in this right like I was watching anti-abortion like propaganda films before I could read um right and so that was just like sort of how I grew up right like we we went to churches obviously around but they were clearly like it was weird, right? Because this is like 80s and 90s. I don't know how much you want me to get into here, but like because of the <laughs> conflation of like um, evangelical and like politics, right? How that term yeah. is becoming more of a political like identifier as opposed to a religious one. Um, you know, this was kind of before all that. And so, you know, there was obviously like the moral majority and, you know, we had like every single day there was somebody like on the TV, on the radio, be it like Billy Graham or Jerry Falwell or like Pat Robertson. Um, so that was like the kind of basis of <laughs> my growing up experience, like the first 18 years of my life. And yeah, it was obviously all of the normal stuff, like very anti-abortion, anti-queer, just, you know, I think that they were a lot nicer about it back then. than they are now for what it's worth it Um, sounds so familiar tori because paul and i grew up in the same time like time frame era yeah um i mean i'm a little bit older than paul i even i'm sad to admit that here but um yeah so a lot of what you're saying sounds very familiar to me and to paul i would imagine did you go to a private uh christian high school for a bit too tori no, I went to, um, I did like a semester at a Bible, like a, like private Christian Bible college. Um, but I, yeah, no, I was, I was homeschooled all the way through for. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So in light of all of that, all that you've been through with that upbringing that you were immersed into, um, looking back at it from your standpoint now like what what are the major pieces that have evolved for you over time that you're like whoa um like basically your deconstruction like what what has evolved and changed for you from those pieces um that is a great question and it's interesting because you know i have i'm the oldest of five um and like i said we were all homeschooled but we all sort of absorbed different amounts of like the political agenda and and the religious agenda let's be honest of you know our our upbringing right so as a little kid you know my dad is like my absolute favorite person like I absolutely worshiped my dad and my dad is a black man and they're you guys live here and there are not a lot of like black people in Portland just compared to any (laughs) other major city and um So for me, like, I was always looking, like, excitedly looking for Black men, especially, right? Because that was, like, I didn't get out of the house much, right? So I was always like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, my dad, and, like, my dad worked a ton because we were very, very poor. And so, I, you know, I was always looking for Black men, especially. And it occurred to me very, very young because of this sort of framing that, 
the people like the people who were in crisis were disproportionately black, like just in my community. And that bugged me, obviously. Um, there's also, there's also there, I, I don't know how much of this exists now, but when I was a kid, like the really far, like the really like Pentecostal, like faith healing people, I'm sure a lot of people who listen to your podcast who have this like similar backgrounds know about like the Pentecostal movement in the United States, but it was a lot more like socially progressive um, right? Like you had women preachers, you had, uh, like mixed race congregations. Um, yeah. In that, in that specific way, it was, it was more progressive. And so even there was a little bit of that, that lingered in that space, even when I, you know, was a kid. And so I thought that like, when people were talking about, I, you know, I thought when people were preaching, like, love your neighbor, I thought they meant it. Right. Because mm-hmm. I was hearing these, I was hearing these pastors, um, like on TV and sometimes in, in real life <laughs> that were like, you know, like we can celebrate racial diversity. Like that is okay. It is okay to celebrate like black men in Chicago who are doing their best. Right. And they're showing up to church every Sunday and they're showing up for their, like, that was, that was considered an okay thing to say. You could not say that now. Like that, that's not, <laughs> even in those spaces like that would not be allowed right and um you know i remember hearing preachers talk about like like really good things that were going on in the black community i remember i had heard preachers talk about like um their connection to uh like native like indigenous communities around the country um i remember preachers talking about like their connections like their asian heritage or all of these different things Again, like, I don't think that that's something that would fly nowadays at all. Um, And even in more mainstream denominations, I don't think that was really a thing. But. Right. So for me, that the like racist pieces of it. um, Right. Because my my textbooks, I had the same textbooks as like kids in private Christian schools. And they were, you know, they were racist. Like. (laughs) <laughs> well, they, yeah. they, it was like and, and it was um it was like biblical racism like Cain and Abel and like the curse of Ham and all of that bullshit mm-hmm. am I allowed to swear sorry um absolutely and- <laughs> it's okay please swear away <laughs> and um you know so there was there was kind of like that piece of it and then there was like the the political there is the political side of of things, right? Like the political, like the Reagan, the Reaganism version of racism, welfare queens, and all that. Um, and so, you know, in the space that I was, like for me, it I didn't make sense. You know, I would read stuff about how, like, oh, it was actually a good thing that, you know, the like ultimately, like the transatlantic slave was a good slave trade was a good thing because. It exposed more Africans to Christ. Oh, <laughs> a funny thing you that we know, like this. Christ yes. cannot be in Africa, so you've got to like extract people in order mm-hmm. to bring them to your religion. Um, like, what are you even talking about? But stuff like that didn't. It didn't really. I, like, I didn't understand it. I was like, I don't know what this means, and yeah. I didn't care enough to like interrogate it or investigate it. I was just like, eh, whatever. Like, that doesn't really jive with the way that I see the world, um, and. Very, very similarly with, with, um, you know, being raised in a very like anti-queer sort of environment, um, 
it was, it was very similar. Like I, you know, I knew by about the time that I graduated from high school that I, you know, was not only attracted to men. And so gasp. I know. I I'm know, in but shock. Like, for a lot of people, like for a lot of people who are raised the way that I was raised, like they didn't figure that out until way later. <laughs> like, right. This is true. This you know, is so because true. it's yes. like, you, well, you didn't know anything about your own sexuality. Like even if you were straight, like you weren't allowed to know anything about your own sexuality. So other than that, it was evil. Right. Yes, correct. Which is why you shouldn't know anything about it. Because, um, <laughs> oh you know, God. whatever, you're supposed to flee from temptation or whatever that verse is. Um, so... <laughs> But still, like, for me, like, knowing that fairly early on, like, I, you know, a lot of my friends, like, a lot of my straight friends who have left, left church, um, or at least left, like, conservative church spaces, they have, you know, they were wrestling with, okay, how do I, like, how do I love people, like, how do I love people and, like, obey these, like, you know, Okay, those these like random verses that are taken out of context and you know have words thrown into them that weren't there a couple hundred years ago right. that we're using to like control the behavior of like all queer people forever like yeah their entire lives you know and, and my framing was a little bit different of like okay so I guess this is a thing that the Bible says is wrong but also you know I know and again maybe this is part of like how my experience was different. I was like, I know queer people and they're nicer to me than the people at church. So like, I don't know, like this is, this is weird for me. Like, I don't know how to make this Bible verse fit into my lived experience. Right. It wasn't like trying to, it wasn't the other way around. It's not, it doesn't, it it wasn't adding up for you. Right. Like it, it really wasn't. And so, um, and I was just like, I don't really see, I know this is a big deal, but I don't get it. I don't know why it's a big deal. Cause like, it's not. So why are we making this such a huge thing? And um, so again, for me, like leaving, you know, my siblings, some of them had a lot more invested in these ideas, like these like really racist ideas and these really like homophobic, transphobic ideas. And I personally didn't have that much invested in it. Like I was trying to figure out how to make, um, my reality sort of fit into what the Bible says instead of trying to make what the Bible says, like my reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so like yeah, that. for me, it was, for me, it was very different than a lot of folks. And I mean, I think that you know, that just sort of comes with the territory of being like a black queer person in the world, <laughs> in an evangelical spaces where like you're not wanted if you are those things. Um, and so you have to really downplay and, and even mock those things in order to be accepted. So I did end up like leaving that behind, but it really wasn't, it was never something I was excited about. It was never something that I was like gung ho, like, oh yeah, this is, this is very clear. Like the Bible says X, Y, or Z. So, you know, when, when Michael Brown was murdered and and the Ferguson uprising happened, that was sort of the moment where I was like, oh, these people actually don't want me here. Like, they don't want me in their space. Like, all of these people who are like, okay, we don't really have a lot of details. Ostensibly, like, an 18-year-old maybe tried to steal a pack of cigarettes or something. And But the wages of sin is death. So if you wind up dead on the street, like, well, the Bible says you had it coming. It's like, okay, um, 
no, I don't think that's what that means. But that was that was really where it started to fall apart for me um, in really a lot faster, I think, than it had been up to that point. Looking at your work, um, I kind of want to hear from you where that connective tissue goes into your passion for neuroscience and some of the ways that racism functions in people's nervous systems and how we combat that. Um, Tell me about that connection in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I... um... Several years ago, at this point, I guess, um, I ended up getting a job in a neuroscience lab. And um, the primary focus of the lab was studying ADHD and autism in the developing brain. So that was like where most of our grant money was coming from. Um, but there, were, it was a huge lab. And so there were people studying um, racism, racial bias, uh, like how priming works in terms of like if you show a white person um, a, a black face versus showing them a white face and then flash an image of, of something like a, a, like a wrench on the screen. If they associate those things, if they, if they've been primed with a black face, they associate more normal things with violence. Right. Mm. Um, so just little, just little things. <laughs> this, lit- <laughs> this literally drives like our entire economic system. Um, so it's not exactly little, right? But finding evidence of, of the ways that, that racial bias works, um, you know, that was research that was going on in the lab. There were people in the lab who were studying maternal trauma and how that impacts the brain development of, of pregnancies that you have down the road. Um, and so... Yeah, I was exposed to like all these really incredible things and started kind of piecing together some ideas that, you know, I'd I'd heard, right? Like I'd heard about um, research on the way that, um, for example, Holocaust victims experienced trauma and that changed their gene expression, right? Um, Wow. And so like I knew I knew some stuff about like on this particular topic and I'm just, you know, a very curious person person by nature and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's like an ADHD thing or like a Gemini thing or like what that is but (laughs) you and I are twins um, ADHD Gemini almost exactly actually (laughs) I know um I you know I was always like okay I'm always trying to like to me the world is a puzzle right and I'm just trying to put the pieces together and being in this space of like okay I actually have access to all of this data, you know, working at a university, you know, we had, we had neuroscientists like, like the best, whatever that means, uh, neuroscientists were doing like really cutting edge work, um, from all over the world or just come and like give talks and you were like, you were encouraged to go to them. (laughs) Um, so it was a really cool environment in terms of, of learning new information and, You know, this is again, it was like as after Ferguson, right? Like after that kind of calmed down a little bit, I, you know, was very much looking for like ways to kind of get out of 
the community that I found myself in sort of by default in a lot of ways. Um, right. And so I started, you know, I started paying, paying more attention. Like, and I, you know, I took some actual like biology classes at the community college because I had never had a real science textbook before in my life. Um, and you know, little things like that. And so for me, you know, looking at this big picture of like, okay, you know, if, if we're talking about trauma from say, the Holocaust or um, people who are fleeing war in any kind of circumstance. And we can we can look at that and we can see trauma. I'm like, to me, there's no way that those things can be traumatic, but like slavery wasn't, right? So yeah. I yeah. just kind of start like putting these pieces together um, of like, okay, so if, if we're talking about changes in gene expression because of like extreme stress because your family could be torn apart like literally any day like you have no agency no control of your own life and again like the impact of that over generations because that gene expression change continues in your kids and your grandkids a lot of the time um i was like oh this makes so much sense right because when you're looking at once you look at people's behavior like through this lens of their experience, their lived experience, it it makes it it makes sense. Like people's behavior is not irrational as frequently. Right. It's like, okay, you know, if somebody is trying to survive, they're going to make certain kinds of decisions, right? And I think that we see we see a lot of kind of similar impacts from things like growing up in purity culture, right? It's it's not to the same degree, but it's the same type of harm. Um and so I have been like my work, I've been trying to kind of educate people around these issues of, of connecting people's like, look at your nervous system responses, right? Or like, yeah, um, yeah. if you are someone who like, understands some of the understand some of the information about, you know, what, what we currently quantify as like adverse childhood event events like your ACE score um connecting excuse me connecting that to present day behavior and you know potential PTSD or anxiety or depression or whatever the, whatever symptoms you have because it's very hard to come out of these environments unscathed it's not impossible but it's you know you're you're an outlier if that is the case um right yeah, so I, I've been wanting to like put together the pieces of, oh, we have this system, right, that is benefiting specific people, and it's also harming other people specifically in order to like prevent them from, you know, living up to their like full potential, just as an example. Before I turn the the topic, though, I did want to ask kind of like on the flip side. So I think you were talking a lot about intergenerational trauma and, you know, how that is passed down even genetically in terms of racism. Is there is there research or data in how like families who have anti-black racism, like deeply embedded in them? 
do they pass that down to their children in a similar way that trauma is passed? Or I don't know if you know if there's any research out there about that. Yeah, definitely. There is. There's a lot of research um, on that particular subject. Um, it is. It's exactly the same. Again, it might not be. Um, the degree will vary, right? But the the kind of harm is the same. Um, and so, you know, and I think that especially if you're talking about a group of people that's like that's re re victimized kind of every generation, or and it's you know because we're told like oh well you're you're not actually you're not actually a victim right but being in a society that like looks you in the eye every day and says like you're just worth less you know um that that has a really big impact on people <laughs> and you can see it in like there are different ways that you can see it. you can see it in brain scans um and uh, like white matter in people's brains, um, you can see it in uh, the rate of cell deterioration over time. Um, wow. That people who experience trauma, and again, it's it's you know hardly unique to like black and Jewish people, but um, you know it's not it's not like not trying to make this the oppression olympics is what i should say but there is you know there's there's data we can we can measure these things and we can see that like cell cell aging increases when people have experienced more trauma um and similarly if you are like for example if you are an indigenous person in this country like you're literally a survivor of genocide so that has that has an impact on your gene expression. Um, and yeah, like that absolutely impacts other things in your life. And it's not that those things can't be overcome, but like, why, why are we, why are we setting up more challenges for people is kind of how I look at it. Right. Like why would we not be doing the opposite? Why would we not be making it easier for people to be like fulfilled, productive members of society? as opposed to making it harder for them. Um, yeah. American Idols is sponsored by Brazos Press, publisher of Andrew Whitehead's new book, American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Andrew Whitehead is a leading scholar in Christian nationalism and has spent years speaking, teaching, and writing on how Christian nationalism corrupts the Christian witness. In his latest book, American Idolatry, Whitehead shows how Christian nationalism idolizes power, fear, and violence, and how those idols violate core Christian beliefs. If you are concerned about Christian nationalism and its threat to the American church, this is your book to understand and resist Christian nationalism in your relationships, community, and church. Pick up your copy wherever books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold. That's how I view it. Awesome. Um, over the course of putting this podcast together, we've we've learned a lot about how whiteness pervades not only religion itself, but also religious educational institutions. And when it comes to the harms that religious education, whether that be homeschooling or private religious schools or private religious colleges... When it comes to the anti-black racism, the queerphobia and transphobia, um, 
What do you think are some of the practical solutions for combating those kinds of ideologies, how to keep them from spreading um, in the really harmful ways that they continue to persist? Um, okay, I love that question. And there's there are a lot of different ways to, to look at this. Um, I think that I try, I, like I try to, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, you know, teaching folks or like when I'm doing, doing my work, I, I try to make it clear that I'm not asking people who are experiencing some sort of harm, discrimination, dehumanization, um, for simply existing. Like, I'm not asking you to go out and be like, have conversations with your friends and neighbor. Like, like that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Right. Um, (laughs) but I think if you're somebody who has privilege, if you're someone who has margin in your life, be it in terms of like, time or energy or resources or connections, whatever that looks like. Um, yeah, there are definitely things that, that you can do and you do have to be, I feel it's more effective rather. I feel like the data says it's more effective to be a little more strategic. Right. And as much as I love, um, running my mouth and getting all snarky on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or wherever. Um, we love it too, Tori. <laughs> what? That doesn't happen. I, I, you know, when I, I think that there are times and places to have really strategic conversations with, with folks. Um, you know, something that I think is really interesting and I, I'm trying to remember where, like who I've even heard talking about this, but, um, you know, data shows that for a lot of people who are either, like initially kind of anti-queer, anti-trans just because of of the way that they were socialized. <laughs> They're socialized anti-trans, right? Um, because of church, community, you know, neighbors, teachers, whatever. Um, that very frequently, like those people claim that they changed their mind because they had like a personal experience with somebody who was queer, who was trans, who was black. And it was like, there's like this built trust. That is not an awesome thing to say, I think, um, yeah. in, in like the environment that we live in. I low-key kind of hate it, but I recognize like this is a this is a tool, right? We're talking about actual tools that are effective because... Again, the piece of behavioral neuroscience that comes into play here is when someone's nervous system is activated, they are not going to respond rationally, right? They are going to respond in like fight, flight, freeze, or appease, right? So we are, you know, once we get to that point of like nervous system activation, you've already, you're, you're having a conversation with a brick wall in a lot of cases. And so I think that if, if we are wanting to be really strategic in the way that we spend our time and our energy and like the conversations that we have with people, um, because I think that they're absolutely essential conversations to have, um, that, yeah, it is, it's really important to, for, you know, for people who have the privilege and the bandwidth to like be able to sit down and have those conversations. I think that that's, I mean, if you're, if you are in that position, I think it's your moral responsibility, frankly, um, because sometimes it is, sometimes it can be really hard for, you know, if you grew up, um, being told a bunch of like negative stuff about black people, as an example, like you're not going to be super open by the time you're 25, 30, 35 to different kinds of 
experiences, right? Like you're going to be starting out pretty shut down. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think, I think similarly with people who are just raised in these like very queer phobic, transphobic churches, um, and, and, uh, schools, universities, it's, it's the same kind of thing, right? If you were constantly being fed like negative information about any group of people, you were going to treat that group of people poorly, most likely, you know, unless again, unless you're an outlier, at least in your head, you're going to have like a poor opinion of that particular group, right? So in order to undo that, right, in order to help people like unlearn that whatever nonsense that they've had shoved down their throats, like that takes, that takes time, you know, and that takes some investment and it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't always pay off either. Right. And I think that just like, that's, that's the hard truth of the matter. Um, like I said, I kind of hate it. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but, um, also like it can also work. So do you think, yeah, I think that that's, that's really what it comes down to. And so, you know, again, having those conversations where people feel safe and I, you know, not that I'm saying like protect the mental and emotional safety of like white supremacists or whatever, like that, again, that's not what I'm saying, but if there are spaces where people aren't feeling activated already, that's a place where you can have a conversation and again, you're not trying to like completely change the person's mind. Like think about it as, as like we learn in church, like you can think about it as like planting seeds, right? Or maybe watering seeds that were planted by somebody else. Um, yeah. That's not, again, people don't change their minds like overnight, you know, but I know that for the three of us, like we've all changed our minds on issues, right? Um, yes. But it again, it wasn't an overnight thing for us either. So yeah, I think giving people kind of that space and like not expecting that like, okay, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to have the hard conversation. And then like, ta-da, you know, this person's going to change their mind. That's not how it works. Right. So again, like being strategic and looking at it is more of like a long-term investment and like just putting in the little bit that you can again, like, be, and you know, again, be like being strategic with, with your time and, and your energy in this, right? If you are, if you were trying to have a conversation with your neighbor, like that's probably, that's probably going to go better than like trying to have a conversation with like a neo-Nazi, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. like you, you have had conversations with your neighbor before, right? Um, and you, you like, you know, something about them, you know, something about their background, you know, like probably things that maybe make them a little bit upset, like, how somebody else has taken out the trash or whatever. And so you can, you can use that. Um, it is a lot more fun to like yell at racists. I will, I will say than to, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> than to uh, have strategic conversations. Um, so I, you know, I totally acknowledge that. And I think that it's totally fine to be, to be snarky. Like there's a place for snark for sure, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm never going to tell people to not be snarky, but um yeah, I think that there's also ways to actually like move the needle um, on some of these issues. And and I think that if we're capable of having, making those kinds of investments, that we should absolutely do that. And, and 
addition to those interpersonal um, or internal efforts, what about external efforts? Like, do you see a place for structural or systemic change? And I guess a little context for that is like, you know, we both grew up in homeschooling and we know what that's like. But there's kind of this new generation of homeschooling and homeschooling is becoming more popular and a bigger part of the American education system. And with with the conflicts over public education around social issues like trans rights and anti-racism education, we're seeing lots of white parents pulling their kids out of public schools and putting them into private schools. And these homeschooling environments are almost completely unregulated by the government and the private schools kind of can get away with whatever they want to, too. Do you see like a structural or systemic need for the government to change how regulation or the financial incentives are aligned? Yes, absolutely. I think that that is... um... Again, that's another tool that that we can use. Um, it can be kind of hard to like sit down with people and go like, okay, we this is an issue that we like need to move the needle on. Like, how are we going to do that? And I, I wish it, I wish it, I wish that weren't the case. I wish it were a little bit easier <laughs> to right? like get some consensus on issues. But um, again, I think that like from what I have seen in the data, like finding an issue is a lot better than like throwing all of your support behind like a political candidate, right? Or like something that's going on in like the federal government. Uh, local is, you're gonna have more, more of an impact there. Uh, that's just that's just how the system is set up right now. I, you know, I think that, I think that homeschooling and like emergency situations totally makes some like logical sense. If, if, you know, if you have a kid who is experiencing like a mental health crisis like that, uh, that totally makes sense. If you have a kid with special needs and you're in a district that just isn't getting funded, like, okay, I understand that. Yeah. It's probably going to make more sense for you to homeschool. But I think that like, homeschooling that has like no regulations no oversight at all is kind of ridiculous um and uh (laughs) like (laughs) i i i posted uh the other the other day when was this This is a couple weeks ago maybe a month ago now there was a piece in the washington post about like these fake schools that people are setting up in their homes um, where kids are doing all of their work basically online. And then there's like an adult in the room or in the house somewhere. Uh, And, you know, again, like, I think that that would probably be realistic if there were some sort of obligation (laughs) to actually educate those children. But in the overwhelming majority of states, there's not. And even in a state like Oregon, where you are supposed to go in and test um, to make sure that your kids are actually like at grade level or, you know, that you can provide some sort of evidence that you're like working towards getting them to grade level or whatever that would be for for their for their abilities. Uh, There's no there's no enforcement mechanism. Right. And so. I think that in that way, we're, we're really sort of like, I don't know. I think we're really sort of like throwing people's potential away uh, in a yeah. very similar way to, to how like racist capitalist structures throw people's 
potential away, right? By just making everything so difficult that you have nothing left except like trying to survive. Um, so yes, I would absolutely love to see a lot more oversight. I don't personally believe that parents have the right to prevent their kids from being educated. I don't think yeah. that's real. I don't think that's a good way of putting it. You know, and and that's that's kind of how I feel about my education, right? Like I yeah. really wish that I had had the opportunity to actually like use my brain for something. Um when when I was younger, right? And I'm lucky that I was able to like find work that you know, works for me, I suppose, but not everybody does. And so, yes, I think, you know, focusing on, on like community kind of led efforts, uh, focusing on efforts that are being led by, by, you know, people in like black and brown communities is also really important. Um, because yeah, we definitely need some like structural changes, but yeah, that takes that takes some organizing and it can be it can be really hard for people to understand that they have egos, never mind to get to the point where you can, you know, work collaboratively with people. When yeah. again we're in we're in a we're in a capitalist environment. Like we're all we're all supposed to be competing with one another one hundred percent of the time, right? So that's kind of, again, yeah. that's how we're like socially coded just in the society that we are in. So, yeah. I want to talk about, or I want you to be able to talk about white homework, but I have, um, one last question for you. Actually, we have two last questions for you. Um, but I've, I think this one is really important because you talked about nuance and strategic conversations. And I've heard you say um, in a webinar, I think it was, that we can't just, when, when we get angry, you know, at systems and oppression and racism and queerphobia and all these things, we can't just say, well, let's just burn it all down um, necessarily, because I've heard you say that there are still people in the room. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we all have days <laughs> when we're like, okay, this isn't working. <laughs> Fuck it. I'm just going to burn it all down. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I, I feel that way a lot as well. Um, but you know, what, what I mean by when I say like, there's still, there's still people in the house, right. Um, is like, okay, we can break everything and like start from scratch, but my neighbor needs insulin, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, and the kids that live like across the alley from me, like they still need to be able to go to school. Uh, as much as I would love to break everything because the people who made it were all bad people, um, there's it's like, true. again, here, it, here. you know, and so I, I, the way that I talk about it is like, you can do controlled burns, but you got to get everybody out of the house first, right? Like you can do demolition, but there's a way that you do that. That's when there's somebody, when there's a family living in a house and you're tearing something down, that's going to look a little different than if there's nobody living there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I 
I never heard anyone explain that the way that you have, because I feel like most responses are just to tear it all down. So I really appreciate um, that you make us rethink that um, for the sake of humanity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, our last question, Tori, before we want to give you a little opportunity at the end to talk about what you're you're currently doing. Um, But this is what we call our Chloe's Corner question. And this question is like a Gen Z question Mm, uh, that that Chloe um, has to ask. But um, here it is. At my university, in just the last few years, the school has gone from being a predominantly white institution to having over 50% BIPOC students in the student body. And I know that has happened or will happen at some other evangelical universities, especially as younger demographics shift. In my experience, these schools that are becoming more diverse are also the schools where there's been a lot of tension between the student body and the administration with regard to social issues. How do you think this shift, with more BIPOC students being filtered into PWI evangelical institutions, will affect both Christian higher education and the students themselves? Um, you know, at least from what I'm seeing, I don't love how this is looking, <laughs> frankly. I think that there's, you know, we are definitely seeing some migration of of uh people of color kind of across the board, like moving politically right. And I think that that kind of shows that at least some of what they're doing is working. And I think that, um, you know, again, Seattle Pacific, when I was, when I was in high school, like that was considered like a progressive Christian school, right? Like they had people who were like anti-racist who were there on campus, either like, either like in positions, like, you know, um, faculty positions or coming to the university to speak, right? There are lots of other, there are lots of other institutions that have like had that historically have had like a more progressive Christian and, and they're not, they're, you know, those people are, those people on those campuses are being targeted by, you know, like the right wing media machine and um, being silenced or let go or, you know, whatever the situation is. I think that I don't think that's a great thing. I see it. It's happening here in Portland as well um, at Christian schools. And I don't think it's awesome, honestly, because those institutions are becoming as they're getting more diverse, they're becoming more conservative. Yeah, I'm wondering if like there is a, it seems like there's a real danger that in bringing in diverse populations, it's really to uh, inculcate whiteness in a diverse community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, again, like these institutions, like even, even public higher ed, uh, those, those spaces are not super super safe for queer people or students of color or whatever you know people from from backgrounds that are anywhere outside of like middle class white cis het situations right so you know, and, and those places are being 
I want I want to say attacked. I don't know. They're being targeted and being pushed further to the right because of reactionaries who like again don't even attend those those universities. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It makes me kind of nervous that that whole trend. Yeah, fair enough. Makes me nervous too. And me. So we're all in that in that uh, same situation. So. Tori, we're getting towards the end here, and we would love for you to tell us about um, White Homework and where we can find you, how people can get connected to you and your work and support your work. Um, So, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I started White Homework like four ish years ago because I was, uh, again, like on Twitter a lot and people kept asking me questions about like, you know, I love what you're saying, but like, what am I supposed to do about racism? Like, and I was, you know, my response is always like, I don't know you, so I have no idea what you're supposed to do about racism. (laughs) Um, and so in order to kind of like avoid that, (laughs) I was like, look, I'm just going to put together this stuff, right? So I'm going to like put together some homework for people so they can sit down and like assess where they are personally in their own like anti-racism journey. And then once you kind of do that assessment of like, again, like how much margin do I have in like the amount of free time I have or like the amount of, of energy I have to do something like, like volunteer work or, you know, running for the school board or whatever, you know, whatever the situation is, um, like how much disposable income do I have? Uh, things like that, and and you know having people kind of sit down and like assess that for themselves, right? <laughs> and then figure out from there. Okay, like this is what I have. Are there places where I can create more margin to in order to like benefit, you know, or to spend my privilege in a way that sort of benefits, um, you know, my neighbors, communities of color. Um, people of color like in the broader community or you know people who like the high school that's by me is you know like 70 percent black students right things like that like thinking strategically again about like how can I use what I do have to show up and yeah. so yeah that's why that's why I created white homework um I've got some free resources on on my website it's toryglass.com um, and there's also some like white homework lessons on some different topics. Um, anti-racism in the workplace is is one of them because again, we're like places are being forced to like get rid of their diversity, yes. equity, and inclusion. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, again, like being able to sit down and strategically go like, oh, what questions can I be asking in these? in these situations, um, what can I, how can I be using my privilege if I'm not supposed to be doing that, (laughs) you know? And so just, again, giving people tools that they can use in whatever situation they happen to find themselves is, is something that's really important to me. So, um, yeah, you can find all of that at toryglass.com. I also have, uh, an anti-racism newsletter that's free that goes out that people can sign up for. Um, amazing. Yeah. I love it. I've signed up. Um, and also, where can we find you on socials? 
Uh, great question. Um, I don't really know right now. It's kind of like the in between. It's kind of weird on social media, <laughs> right? Um, I've I've linked to a lot of my social media. It's I'm mostly at Tori Glass on things, um, like Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky, other places. <laughs> um, I don't all of them. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of, it's hard to keep up, right? And so I'm just trying, you know, trying to figure out where where people are going. At this point, because yeah, it's kind of same. like it's the great migration of social media right now. So, um, yeah. But that's your website too, right? Tori Toryglass.com is my website. Okay. I'm mo- I'm on most things, I'm at Tori Glass. Um, on Instagram, uh, I have uh, the at White Homework account as well, where I you know try to post information, facts, data about anti-racism and, and social justice and what it looks like to love love your neighbor because you know like i still still hold on to that piece of things even though yeah it's an important thing a lot of churches don't do that anymore so and just sidebar you're also on patreon um yes so for those who want to support tori's work um she's on patreon i am a a patron and happy to be one so um Tori, this has been amazing. I think you're a wonderful person. You know this. Um, and I've learned a lot. I always learn a lot from you. Mm, thank you. Same here. Same here. And thanks, yeah, for bringing some really unique perspectives on, you know, the nervous system and um, all the education and work that you've done. Uh, thanks for sharing it with people. Yeah. Because it takes a lot of energy, I am sure. Yeah, it does. I'm I'm glad that I get to do it, but it does take a lot of energy. So I appreciate you you all as well and like the work that you're doing because it's so, so incredibly needed. Thank you, Tori. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground. I'm your narrator, Chloe, alongside co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick and Aaron Green. This podcast is a product of the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and is produced by Crystal Cheatham from Our Bible App. Listen next time as On God's Campus examines the lessons history has to teach us about where predominantly white Christian educational institutions and the political machines backing them are taking the country now.